we pray. Wow, a lot of times at Ron and myself, we're in cafe worship, so it's been a long time since we've been in the sanctuary. And it's nice to, Rod, to see how you conform the stage because we just see the poof, the screen. And I get it because I see the little stickers where y'all, this is pretty cool. So y'all have a system. So, uh, but anyway, uh, the other thing I concluded this morning because uh, uh, I guess I taught or tried to preach this morning in cafe worship, uh, we need to give Brother Tim a raise. I'm exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I was in pretty decent shape, but uh, I just may just go ahead and tumble off the stage. But, uh, but, but anyway, this is, uh, we're going into the summit. This is as we, I don't want to say wind down, but I want to say we're winding up. Uh, it's been a real experience for me. Uh, if you want to say we had bold, uh, we kicked the night off with uh, Richard Hartsock. I, I tell you what, and I can't say we really kicked the, it off with on Friday because we started the Beachland a couple of weeks ago. Um, Brother Tim had this excuse of a surgery or something, and, and all of a sudden we got loaded up for a revival, and, and uh, we kind of got thrown in that. But uh, this has kind of been a, a real blessing as far as I think uh, what kind of pulled out of it is, is every day to seeing the joy of different people and different men uh, working closer together. So it's, there's just been a lot of fulfillment for me, and it, it kind of makes me go back a little bit, uh, I guess— this thought or this kind of, uh, the Lord was working me about a year ago when this really started working in my heart. And, and I kind of shared it with uh, Dennis Smith in January. So it's been a, almost a full, a full year. But I was kind of thinking about it. It was almost the same timeline when I started thinking about running my first marathon, Chicago Marathon. I, you know, I was running a lot of little road races or whatever. And I said, well, just, I just want to run a marathon. And somebody said, if you run one, run a big one. Run Chicago. There's 40,000 people. There's a million spectators. They go, well, that sounds like fun. But, you know, after about 20 weeks of training, get in Chicago in mile 20, you say to yourself, this is the craziest idea I have ever had. I spend money. I'm out of town. I, it's just everything is bad. But that wasn't my idea with this. I'm just trying to let God kind of work through that. Um, because this is not me. I don't know where this is going. Uh, it just was on our hearts. And, uh, and that's why bold at the summit, if we throw up a screen, uh, I'll, I'll show you the kind of the title. It's, um, I can talk to it. This thing of bold faith. So that kind of brings us in the, in the, uh, the message we're talking about is, is that kind of the picture. And the one thing that I, I kind of want to give you the, a word picture is, oh, there it is. Great. I was looking right over Margie's head and I wasn't looking left or right. It's clear. It's time to have a bold faith. And, and a lot of that, it, that just kept striking my mind and I think striking our hearts. And as we started talking about this, bold just kept coming up. Bold just kept coming up. So it, it's time to have a bold faith. So the one thing that I kind of want to ask you guys is kind of, to kind of uh, think outside the box a little bit or maybe go back a little bit as we go into the fall. We're in the fall, and, and we are going into the basketball season. But the one thing that have you ever had seen anybody or get moved to tears? Been there lately? Anything brought you to tears? Well, I'm going to throw up a screen, and I'm going to ask you if you recall this. Every year about this time, 1992, Duke beats UK, Kristen Leichner, and I see men just, oh, 
and they just fall down. This is 23 years ago, and it's still painful. It, it's kind of funny. I guarantee you. And then I noticed last year there's a video or a film, I Hate Christian Leitner. It, it's there. So you, you see this with the pain, but this is kind of things from a man's perspective. You'll be talking, and, and it's just like it happened yesterday. And it's just all the anguish. The other thing that I was thinking about is maybe it's more real than something that I think a lot of it in this room uh, can recall. If you go to the next slide, it's 9-11. It, it was something obviously on September the 9th, 2001. This was something that uh, our enemies attacked at our World Trade Center, our Pentagon, our military, and obviously they were after our capital. This was is something that was visual. Uh, ingrained and we all you can probably remember we were worried we watched that unfold right in front of our eyes in real time some of the other images I can imagine or that I see was if you remember that time was our our Congress on the Capitol steps and they were talking about that evening and they broke out singing God bless America it was a moving thing it was wonderful I thought you know, even though a tragedy, but it was something that it kind of gripped us as a nation. This is the same marathon I was running. If you remember, they canceled all events. Remember that? Super, I mean, football games or whatever. Nobody go anywhere. Canceled. Well, the first event that they didn't cancel was the Chicago Marathon. It was two weeks later. That's the one I was training for. So this was the biggest event since 9-11. A million spectators, 40,000 runners is going to show up. Well, at that time, they, had missed, they were missing a couple of crop dusters. And if you remember the rumor, they were going to come down and spray the whole crowd with poison and kill us all. That was the big, big scare or whatever. But Rhonda was brave. She kicked me out at the finish line, and she left. She's, so, so she said, she's got to be there for the kids, right? Kids and life insurance. So I go, okay. <laughs> I know where I feel, but, but anyway, there was no crop duster. But the amazing thing that happened, the amazing thing that happened is, uh, as you're at most sporting events, you know, they, pre- they play the national anthem. All right, it, it is a touching thing. But this was the first national event right after 9-11. And when they played that, 40,000 runners lowered on their knees, and they wept, and they cried, and they prayed. It was amazing. That was, other than, you know, losing toenails and everything, that was the most memorable experience is our nation praying together and weeping at that time. So I want to leave that image, and if you go to the next, is Nehemiah. This is a story that we'll talk about. It's not a story. This is a real thing. If you could punch somebody next to you, Nehemiah is a real person. He's just like the person sitting beside you or me. He is just as real as can be. But to kind of give you a backstory was, uh, if you remember the Ten Commandments, Charles and Heston, you remember the Israelites come out of Egypt to the Promised Land, remember Solomon, temple, David built the temple. This is all the stuff that we're talking about. But, but God's people fell away, fell away from God, fell away from the commandments. And God had the Assyrians and Babylonians to conquer them and move them into Babylonia. And they moved them to exile. And then later Persia. This is, this is so the temple was destroyed. The walls around the temple, and we're talking about the wall. You see the wall. That was like two and a half mile wall, eight feet thick, 40 feet tall. So it's a pretty good wall. So it's in ruins. 
So when the Persians, here again, these are superpowers, come out and conquer the Babylonians, they let some Jewish exiles back to Jerusalem and start rebuilding the temple. But still, 70 years later, the wall is still down. If you remember the temple, what's in the temple? With the ark. You remember that God, God lived in the temple. But if you could see the temple and the God's walls down, God's enemies just laughed and said, look at your God. It's destroyed. And it was really embarrassment, really embarrassment. And this is where Nehemiah, he's, he's not there at Jerusalem, but he has a burden, a thing about Jerusalem and the image of God. So I want to read chapter 1 and 2. Bear with me, but I think it's so important to kind of to follow that. So you can flip to Nehemiah. Chapter 1. It says, the words of Nehemiah, son of Halakai, the month of Keslah, the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hananiah was one of my brothers, and this was actual physical brother. Hananiah was one of my brothers. It came from Judah with some other men, and it questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and about Jerusalem. This was a group 70 years ago, had went back there to reestablish. So this is years ago, so they come back there, and it's like anybody— What's going on in Jerusalem? You know, it's even though that we have FaceTime, telephones, everything, you want to know what's going on. But when somebody comes from an area or somebody you want to know more personally, what's going on? What's going on there? Give me the details. And the details is, they said to me, those who survived the exile or back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and the gates have been burned with fire. So he's just given some information that was not any different the last 70 or 80 years. The walls has been broken down. Gates have been destroyed by fire. Nothing's changed. But he was probably hoping for a change. It's, it's something as when people deal with something or a piece of bad news, you're always looking for something good. But he was looking for something change. And then here's, here's Nehemiah. When I heard these things, this is beautiful. Nehemiah has never been there. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before God of heaven. And then I said, wonderful prayer. Lord, the God of heaven, of great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love for those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. This is beautiful. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself, my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands and decrees and the laws that you have given your servant Moses. Remember the instructions you gave your servant Moses, saying, and this is cool. He goes back and he, and he talks about the commands he gave us in Moses. He's quoting. This is, this is cool. He goes, remember the instructions you gave if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are from the farthest to the horizon, I will gather them up and bring them to the place I have chosen to dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people who have redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servants success today by granting him flavor with this man. I am the cup 
cupbearer of the king. Well, what is that, cupbearer of the king? Well, obviously he was right-hand man of the king, King Xerxes. And, and if you remember, these are pretty bad guys. If you look at them wrong, you're dead. But he is cupbearer. That means that, you know, anything that comes to the king, any arrangement, any, he controls everything. And obviously he's a taster or whatever because everybody wants the king's dead. And the king holds him in high regard. So he was a pretty high-level individual. So I was a cupbearer of the king. Chapter 2. In the month of Nisan, the 20th year of King Xerxes, when the wine was brought to him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. It had not been sat, I had not been sat in his presence before, so the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of the heart. He says, I'm very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors were buried lies and runs and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And then the king says, what is it you want? Then I prayed to God in heaven, and, and I answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servants have found favor in the sight, let him send me to the city of Judah where my ancestors are buried so I can rebuild it. Then the king said, with the queen sitting beside me, ask me, how long will your journey take, and when will you be back? If it pleases the king, it pleases the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have the letters of the governors and Euphrates, so they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have the letter of Asphalt, the keeper of the royal park, so you give me timber and make beams and gates of the citadel by the temple for the city wall and the residence that I will occupy. And because of the glorious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave the king's letter. The king also sent the army and officers and the cavalry with them. When the Salabat, the Ammonite, and the Talabai, and the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying three days, I set out during the night with three others with a few others. I had not told them what my God had put on my heart to do for Jerusalem. They were no mount, there were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well, the dun gate, and examined the walls of Jerusalem, in which it had been broken down and its gates had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mouth to get through. So I went up to the valley by the night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing because I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or the officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, do you see the trouble we are in? Jerusalem lies in runs and the gates have been destroyed, been burned by fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began the woodwork. I'll stop there. It's amazing, isn't it? You've kind of concluded. You can kind of see where Nehemiah was burdened. Um, the one thing, if you go to the next slide, it's time to have a bold faith. And we've been talking about bold for, for some time now. And if you go to the next slide, um, I guess you can think Brother Tim had been using uh, acronyms a lot. He had used one on reflect. And uh, it was kind of cool to see what, where uh, Richard was going to be uh, bringing his, his, uh, his acronyms from Friday night. So for B, uh, 
His burden is spiritual. Uh, Friday night, if you was here, V was belief, wasn't it, Richard? V is belief, but um, it's spiritual. It's a spiritual concern. You have a burden, and, and obviously Nehemiah had a burden. It was a spiritual. And, and burden is basically, it's an unselfish concern of God's will. Sometimes you'll just get this, and, and you feel a real burden in your heart. And, and you can see that in Nehemiah 2.4. Hannah, one of my brothers, come from Jerusalem. Remember, he comes to there, and he's asking about it. He's wanting to know something. He was really burdened on what was going on there. He's so burdened, he's wanting any information, any crumb of information you can get. You've been there before. You've been asking. You will search. You will ask, and you will just nip and pit. Uh, Jack Wright with Indonesia, have a burden to go there. You look, you search. It is something that you just can't get away from, but it's a burden. Uh, one thing that, as I've been going through this study for it seems like forever, but, it's, but for some months is I keep coming back to churches of America, spiritual churches of America. I was going to give you, I read this statistic. It says in the last 20 years, every year there's been 4,000 church closes every year. 1,000 churches, new churches open. Last 20 years, 4,000 closed. So the last 20 years, there's been 80,000 church closes, 20,000 new starts. Kind of get the math there? It doesn't look good. The, the other thing that it was also in that same article, it says 2.7 million churchgoers a year in the United States will fall away without attendance. In this room or whatever, somebody will just stop attending altogether. They will just stop. 2.7 million people. I, I can't put my head around that number, but it, it, it's, just, it's data. Uh, if you were here last night, Dennis Smith did a great job as far as analytical. I'm, I'm really there on that structure part. I, I like that. But the, but the other part of it is that I read down here that says 23 million people ages 12 and up every year will get professional help for alcohol and drug addiction. 23 million people in the United States ages 12 and up will seek professional help for drug or alcohol addiction. That's not even talking about the people that's untreated. 23 million. And I find another interesting statistic, the causes of death, obviously heart is number one, uh, cancer number two. You know what number 10 is? Of all these natural disease, suicide, number 10. Natural death, death, 100% cubal, suicide. So you, you, you look at the logic here, as I think as we fall away, things go the opposite way. It, it's, it's real easy to look at, but why are we missing this? So. I say burden is spiritual. So I look at this and say, why is this happening? So uh, suicide, it's all preventable. If you go to the next slide, burden is personal. I think this is from a Nehemiah's perspective. Burden sometimes it gets so personal, so personal. You saw that he fasted and he prayed day and night. Going from chapter 1 when he was praying day and night to chapter 2 when he went before the king, there's a little indicator of how long he fasted and prayed. Not that he fasted, four months. He prayed and fasted from Keslam to Nisan. Nisan, it's four months. He talked about fasting and praying. He was, went from a burden to a personal, and he just prayed and he prayed and he prayed. Isn't that amazing? It, it, as, you, as you move to that, God puts that burden on your heart. Sometimes you can't sleep. Obviously, you can't eat. 
And it's all you can think about anytime you get alone. Sometimes you don't want to get alone because you don't want to hear it. You just keep busy. You keep the white noise going because, Lord, I don't want to hear you. I'm busy. So, so anyway, it goes to personal. So, so what are some, some things about, from a, a personal standpoint that bothers me as I look and as I look is that I thought there was another interesting point is there's 750 million people worldwide that live in poverty. poverty. You say, what's poverty? Well, obviously, they don't have a means for a proper shelter, food, little food or no food, no clean water, and no money. They can barely survive. And obviously, they're not survive. 750 million worldwide. That's huge. And then getting things in perspective, the population of the United States is 350 million. So you take us and double it. That's poverty in the world. I struggle with this. The other thing I struggle with in the same article a little bit down, it says 2 billion people will die in our lifetime with not even hearing the word of Jesus Christ. 2 billion people will die. Not even to accept it, but not even hearing the word Jesus Christ. And we take that, or I take that, so common that I can pick it up, I can read it, I decide not to, I can listen to it. So I get to the point where, why am I born? Why am I here? Why am I so blessed to have God's word? Why did I have that witness to me at an early age? Why, why, why? I struggle with that. Why am I so blessed with that? Is it just the American way? Are we just Americans and we should have all the blessings? And let all the other world just die without him? Is that it? The American dream, you, you've all, you know, you always hear the American dream, you know, two cars, a garage, and um, two, two and a half kids, is that it? Uh, the American dream. Nowhere that I see in the footnotes there's an American dream in there. I struggle. Why, why am I here? Why am I in the United States? Why am I so blessed with all we have? Why? It's really becoming personal. I don't know why. Don't understand it, but it has to be some more to that. God has got to be equipping us for that. There's a reason, and the reason is burden. It hits spiritually and it hits personally and it hits all differently. My burden will be different from somebody else and somebody else. My wife's burden is Haiti. I'm not there yet. She always, when she say Haiti, she just melts right in front of me. She just melts. And she said, what about you? Doesn't bother me at all. Maybe Peru. Mark Riggenbacher went to Peru. I got a real burden for Peru. It, it's, it's how God works. Jack Wright, Indonesia. It, there is a wonderful how people will move people in different directions. So some of us, are, and I've heard said, well, Kenton, I don't have any burdens. Okay. There's two conclusions I could draw from no burdens. Either you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ are you so far removed or your walls are so crumbling down? God's not talking to you. He's talking to you, but you're just, your walls are crumbled. You have so much other stuff in your life. He's not coming through. It's not a God problem. It's a you problem. So it's out there. And a lot of times if you start slowing it down and getting in touch with God, you will see that opportunity everywhere. It's amazing. All right. Oh, what was O for yours, Richard? I can't remember. Object? Object. I put obedience. 
And obviously, I think uh, from an obedience perspective, requires sacrifice. And I think that's hard for us Westerners, obedience. Nobody tells me anything, I'll do what I want to do. Is, is that pretty much it? Uh, we don't want to be told anything, I'll figure it out on my own. And a lot of that, we look proud of that, and, and, and that's a good trait. But we don't want to uh, obey, and, and the definition is obeying and willing to obey or complying with submission to authority. It's painful. It's really painful. Um, and I think we Americans really struggle with that. Uh, the reason I'm saying is that I've been in the industry for a long time, but I, I notice in, in the Asian or in the Japanese or whatever, when they're given a task to do, you tell them, I want you to do this, 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 and this. You tell them that, and you walk away 10 years from now, they're doing this, 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 and this. You tell the same American that, they're going to go, why? Why do I want to do that? Why can't I do this? What? It's hard. We Americans got to know everything about it. And if I come back tomorrow, it's different. It, it, it's just the way we, heard that we evolved. So this, I think this is really from a, a hard point is being obedient. And this is probably why I struggled so long to even we want to do bold because I'm not comfortable with doing this. Why do I want to do this? I would prefer to listen to Brother Tim talks. I'd rather listen to him sweat and spit. I'm, I'm good with that. But it's obedience and has sacrifice. And the, and the reason if you're talking about Nehemiah and the sacrifice, I told you he was, he was really number two. He was in the comfortable king's quarters. He had all the food he wanted. And he asked to go to a city that was in ruins, collapsed and try to rebuild it. And it's just not like jumping in your car and going to Franklin or going to Bowling Green. It took four months to get there. That's a sacrifice. So, so the king asked, well, what do you need from me? How long are you going to be gone? Oh, by the way, I need a leave of absence for three years. <laughs> I don't know how your boss would take a leave of absence. I don't know, Warren, would you... Let Tim be off three months. We were struggling with three weeks, much less three, three years. So that's difficult, but three years leave an absent. And this is the number two guy. So, so it takes sacrifice. If you go to the next slide, it says what else? Uh, I think this is pretty cool. It says uh, obedience provi provides fulfillment and joy. How does obedience do that? Doesn't make sense, does it? I've seen a lot of it the last couple of weeks. I've seen the joy and fulfillment of working with these guys. Uh, it's just been amazing. It's just at a different level. I could never comprehend uh, us walking through this something that's totally out of our comfort zone. It's been really fulfillment. And I don't know what God's going to do. It's kind of scary, but it's joyful at the same time. But if you look at Nehemiah, he went to the king. And he said, oh, he, he did that prayer. Uh, he says, with the queen sitting inside of me, he says, how long is this going to take? This, the king said, please, go. How much time? Then also the king granted him royal for, uh, force for the gates and stuff. Sure, while well, I'm doing that. And also, oh, by the way, won't you take a cavalry and stuff along with you? He didn't ask for that. 
And that a joy, it's sometimes when you go into that, God will give so much more that you, I can't imagine. So he's got a whole army going with him to Jerusalem. It, it's pretty cool. So, so that fulfillment, uh, and another thing that we've, I guess you've heard the Ahern's Church on the Square, 611. They drove all the way from Oklahoma to be a part of the summit Friday, Saturday. That was such a joy. <laughs> you know, they're driving 12 hours back today. It's 24 hours in the car. But they wanted to do that. But I have joy from that. We've all experienced that joy. So obedience provides fulfillment and joy. Uh, BL. Me and Richard were right on target here as leaders. <laughs> we, we come together. But uh, in the... Leaders value solitude. Oh, I, I value solitude. Rhonda, I value solitude. I can crawl in a hole and pull the hole on top of me and be so happy. I just love that. So, but there, there's, a, there's a sickness if you get too much. So that's where my wife Rhonda pulls me out and sets me straight. But there's a part of solitude is very important. They're very important in our spiritual life. That you've got to have that quiet time of prayer time to listen to the Lord speak. He's there. He's speaking. It's called solitude. And this is a, the amazing thing that uh, you can see in, in Nehemiah chapter 12. I'm going to say verses 11 and 12. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying for three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I told not anyone what had God put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. So while everybody was sleeping, he gets on this donkey or mule and he rides around while everybody is sleeping solitude not even talking about the four months prior to him leaving was the prayer i'm sure that was solitude the time away of reflecting so solitude is so important the next ah these are some of my favorite things leaders gather facts you can get so much facts you don't do anything. <laughs> but there's a point where you get enough facts, you know what you're doing. Uh, leaders gather facts. And I think this is so cool that you, if you see in verse 13 and 14 in chapter 2, imagine this. He's in Jerusalem, and he's, he's riding around in chapter 13. He's there. He says, by night I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well in the dun gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem. Examining, okay, which had been broken down and its gates had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on the fountain gate to the king's pool, but there was not enough room for any amount to get through. So I went up through the valley by night. So he's, he's leading up through the valley by night, examining the wall, and finally I turned back and re-entered the valley gate. So while everybody's sleeping, he's riding around. He's looking at two and a half miles of the wall. This gate needs repaired. He's probably thinking what manpower I need. Who has the best skill at that? He, he's looking. He, he wants to look at it for himself firsthand, firsthand experience. I'm going to go back to Jack Wright. He went to Indonesia just to see from a water project, how's this going to work? You go out and you look, and then you come back planning. The other thing that I was taught was really, really neat that he goes out of the valley gate up into the valley. And if you look at some of the pictures on that valley, you have an overall perspective of the temple and the wall. So he's looking down, and I can just imagine him sitting there praying for strength 
and how to go through the next step. It's beautiful. But then again, he's on a reconnaissance mission. And then he gets, um, if you go to the next slide, or next, yeah. Leaders carefully choose their words. That's my last point on leaders. Ron, this is my last point. So you, you thought I would probably spend more time here than anywhere else, but it is but three parts of it. But leaders choose their words. And, and I, I don't want to say this, that after he rode around on uh, 216 and 17, chapter 216, the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing because as yet I had not said nothing to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or any others who would be doing the work. Hadn't said anything. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in? Jerusalem lies and runs and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. There will be no longer be in disgrace. I will also told them about the gracious hand of my father my God on me and what the king had, done, had said to me. Then they replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began the good work. He had not really communicated or said anything. A lot of times we get this, I, all we want to do is start talking about it. And next time, what are you going to do about this? What are you going to, I, I, I don't know. In, in the beginning, I look more stupid than I, than I really am. And I guess that's, but anyway, he said the right words at the right time. He chose these words. And it makes me go back a little bit when I'm still back in manufacturing, choosing the right words and how uh, a wrong word said in the wrong time will uh, cause people to get really upset. But I came out on the floor and we have Japanese trainers train the Americans how to do something. But I came out and the American had this Japanese trainer, he's not too tall, up against the wall screaming at him. I go, oh my gosh, you, you've been proud of me, Tim. I stepped in and go, whoa, 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 wait, 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 what's going on, what's going on? Because he was angry. He said, nobody tells, nobody orders me nothing. Nobody orders me to do anything. I said, wait a minute, I'll, I'll take care. So I talked to the Japanese trainer, and he's, he's really new, he doesn't know English. And I said, what did you say? Well, I ordered him to do this, I ordered him to do this. Let's not use the word order. We Americans don't like order. It was, I think if we was to ask. So chose the wrong words. He would have done it, but the word order just goes, kind of sets it different. You got to choose your words sometimes the right way to set the message. So it's choosing your words at the right time, at the right moment. Next slide. See, you think I'm done, aren't you? It's 1201. We're close. We're close. It's not done. Um, If we go to the next slide, it's deliverance and unleashes the people of God. And I'm going to summarize chapter 3 a lot. If you was to look at chapter 3, there's a lot of names or family names. Uh, there's a lot of things that goes on in chapter 3 because they're building the walls. They said, let's start building the walls. But if you envision, but if you envision a wall and the back of the wall is most people's homes. So the back wall of people's home is the wall. So in theory, if you read, is a lot of individuals built their wall. What's in front of me? My next neighbor built my wall in front of me. And then maybe a family built the wall in the gate. So collectively, 
In 52 days, they built a wall around Jerusalem. That's a symbol of God. Uh, I say all that, it, it, it's wonderful, but I, I want to say this because this is a picture of the way that walls are in our life or any church life. Our nation can be rebuilt again and repurposed. And if you know that when Christ died on us as Savior, and we accepted him, the temple relies on us. He's in us now. And the broken down walls that are around us is the things we let in, the garbage and the trash. And I have to rebuild my wall, the things I say, my thoughts I have, and build my wall because it affects everybody. But if I get my life in line, Richard gets his life, and, and Mark, we're building this beautiful picture. We're building a beautiful church. We're building a beautiful community. We're building a beautiful school. It's that part. We all have to do our part. He died on us on the cross. The veil was ripped from top to bottom. It's done. The temple is in us every day. So we walk out, and we look ugly because our wall's down, and we get a bad name because how can he be a Christian? Exactly. I'm asking, our walls has to be rebuilt piece by piece. And that's where we're coming together. If our walls are coming back, if our walls are built, if our church is built, it unleashes the people of God. It's endless. We talk about the two billion people hadn't heard. That's nothing. We have to enact what we have. I think the churches in America are ready for that. We have to. The one thing that, that comes to, to my mind, and, and I'm about done, okay? I'll go back to the D, I'm about done. comes to my mind is in World War II, when Japan bombed Pearl Harbor, Hamamoto was the emperor of the fleet. Bombed, it was a, it was a great victory from the Japanese side. It, it was one-sided. It was huge victory, no doubt about it. And it's in the history books. But as he was steaming back to Japan with his fleet, one of his his subordinates come up to him and said, what a great victory. You should be so excited. This is wonderful. And he says, my fear is we have woken a giant. And he was pretty right because military, we were 17th in the country. In the world, we went to number one. Our economy was number 30, went to number one at the end of World War I. We had... 300 land bases at that time. And after World War I, we had 30,000 land bases. You can see a sleeping giant. I'm looking at churches across America. We're better educated. We know what the God of the Word is. What's going to take to wake us up? What's it going to take? We see us crumble. We are no different than the Israelites. We turned away from God, and God moved his hand we are no different and we are just like them we come and we go every every day in and out and we have this baggage we have this stuff and we choose not to do anything about it i'm burdened with that i know our pastor's burdened for that it's just not his job it's all of our job we have to come together collectively the one thing that i heard last night last night was a, was a great blessing is um, in Psalm 27, 1, 
And I'm sure you're familiar with this. It says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is a stronghold in my life. Whom shall I be afraid? When the evil doers come against me and devour my flesh, and my foes and my enemies stumble and fail, though the army, de army deploys against me and my heart is afraid, though the war breaks out against me, still I am confident. Ransom Hearts last night sung a beautiful song that I dearly, dearly love. It's by Chris Tomlin. If I could sing, I'd sing it for you. But you're blessed because I don't sing. But I just want to write a few words from that passage. You crush my enemies underneath my feet. You are my sword and shield. Though troubles still linger, whom shall I fear? This is beautiful. I know who comes before me and who stands behind. This is beautiful. The God of angels' armies are always on my side. The one who reigns forever, he's a friend of mine. Isn't that beautiful? So, it's time to have a bold faith. It's automatic. We have somebody. He's conquered. And why do we see so retreat? It's bold. I first was thinking, I want to be a soldier of Christ. But no, I want to be a warrior. I want to be a warrior. With that confidence... Why are we so immune to what's going on? Why aren't we praying? Why aren't we seeking out? I don't know. The one thing is, as we close, I'm asking if you have anything, anything, please come forward. Just pray. Start your block today. Just one. Tomorrow, add to it. Have somebody pray with you. This is the other thing, and I'm over, I'm done, is last night was, was so moving that one of the ladies on, in uh, Ransom Heart, she made a, a, a sign. And I have to show it because it's so real. Leave your pews. I can't imagine what you are dealing with in your hearts right now. God does. And to come in and leave in, the, in this wonderful building without asking him for help for, for today or tomorrow, don't do it. I'm just asking just to start today. Just one thing. Collectively, as a church, I can't imagine what the God can do. It's exciting. I, we have one more session tonight, and I can't wait to hear it. But let's start today. Let's start I'll be down here. I would love to pray for you. I would love to talk to you. I have a lot of stuff that's going on. But if you go back, if you have burden, if you're obedient, if you lead your family, lead your marriage, lead your school, lead your employment, there's a deliverance. It's a byproduct. It's deliverance. Why would we want that?
Let's pray. Father, before Kenton began, I, I asked you to give us courage to do what you call us to do. And I confess to you, I was thinking about that in terms of after we leave the room, not while we're in the room. But would you give us courage to respond here in these moments so that we will be fortified to be obedient and courageous when we leave? So help us now to do what you're calling us to do in these moments. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray.